This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Terror number 403, January the 30th, 1998. Susan Burns, our most recent resident staff member. Students of uh, Chalcedon who have followed our work know her name. She is familiar to you. And she is now an administrative assistant as well as a writer and an editorial assistant to Andrew Sandlin. Before we proceed with the uh, question which I will introduce, Susan, we're very happy to have you here. Uh, Susan is a transplanted Virginian. We've had a Virginian before, Dr. Douglas F. Kelly, a Reformed Theological Seminary now, and one of our trustees, Wayne Johnson, is a Virginian. Tell us just a little bit about your life in Virginia. This is your first uh, venture into foreign soil apart from Mississippi and West it Virginia. Is, it is. All of my life I've lived in a circle about two and a half to three hours from my family, so this is quite a change. But the mountains here look like the mountains back home, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And no doubt some southern churchmen are glad you're out here rather than there. <laughs> they probably are. <laughs> Susan has been a veteran reporter and writer, and she's done a great deal to expose wrongdoing in the church. Of course, Andrew Sandlin and Mark Rushdooney are with us again tonight. Now, we have a very, very important question, one which, while it's been touched on in the report and in various writings, is an urgently necessary one, getting renewed attention. It comes from a very able and outstanding man, a good friend of many years standing, the Reverend Byron Snap, also from Virginia. The questions he raises are with regard to the doctrine of six-day creationism. And so here are some of the questions he raises. First, a biblical basis for six-day creation including the meaning of day in Genesis 2-4. Was six-day creation a theological issue prior to the appearance of Darwin's work? The ramifications of treating the first chapter of Genesis as non-literal on the rest of Scripture and a developing worldview. The importance of a proper understanding of creation uh, for other biblical doctrines. Reflections on how you have handled this issue when it has arisen against your ministry. And finally, what are some good books on six-day creation that you would recommend? Well, let's just pitch right in to say that this is one of the central questions of a biblical faith. Anytime anyone takes a non-literal view 
of chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis, they have sacrificed the faith. Very, very early in the history of the church, that problem began. It began because Christianity moved out of Judea into a Greco-Roman culture. Greco-Roman thought rested solidly on an evolutionary perspective. We cannot begin to understand the depth of the problem until we understand that fact. The whole point of Aristotle's thinking, for example, was that the study of freaks was important because a two-headed calf could be the next step in evolution. And so the Greeks were very interested in any unusual, uh, seemingly unnatural event. When Paul went to Mars Hill, remember, all the philosophers were immediately interested when he spoke about this remarkable fact in Jerusalem. A resurrection had taken place. They all gathered round. Well, maybe this is the next step in the development of man. But the minute Paul made clear this was done by the predestination and utterly absolute counsel of a sovereign almighty God, they turned away. They wanted to hear no such thing, only of resurrection as a freakish accident and possibly the next step in evolution. Now, this meant that when Christianity moved out of Palestine into a Greco-Roman culture, it moved into a world where there was no belief in a sovereign God, in God's many, but not God as the one. Aristotle allowed place for the idea of God as a limiting concept. He did not believe in an absolute, unchanging, personal God. He believed only in a first cause. The Greeks rejected scientifically the idea of an infinite regress. Where did this come from? Well, from that, from that, from that back on into infinity. There had to be a beginning. So they posited the idea of God as a first cause. That was God's only function. He was not a person. He was an abstraction, an idea. Now, this meant that the early church, as it moved into that world, was regarded as, uh, well, something remarkable did happen there in Judea. Uh, these events apparently are true. But of course we can't take all this Jewish paraphernalia with it, such as Genesis. And so the church fathers from the beginning tried to do away with the historicity of Genesis. In fact, Gregory of Nyssa, St. Gregory, according to the official calendar, saw all 
of the books of Moses as symbolic. He could not believe, for example, when he read the laws that God was literally interested in man's diet. Therefore, the dietary laws were symbolic of something else. And so everything in uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy meant something else. No one in their right mind could have uh, come to the conclusions that Gregory did, but as a very learned and scholarly man, his work was accepted within the ranks of Greco-Roman Christianity. It has governed many, many thinkers over the generations. As of my last uh, checkup on it, his work on the uh, five books of Moses is still in print. So this opinion was commonplace. Many very fine men like St. Augustine held to it. They simply could not accept a literal six-day creation. They believed in the supernaturalness of the New Testament and would admit it in the Old Testament, but they were very fuzzy about the doctrine of God and definite that uh, Genesis 1 through 11 could not be literal. So this is not a new problem in the church. With the Reformation, you had an emphasis on the historicity of these chapters. However, very quickly, as classical learning made its uh, recovery and infiltrated into the church, they went from a God who performs these things, does exactly as he has said he did in his word, is somehow to be replaced by a process. You have some very devout Christians, some Arminians, some ostensibly reformed who claim to believe the Bible, who have gone back to classical education. Well, it was classical culture and education that has done the damage over the centuries to a biblical faith. And they want to restore it as though they were doing some great good. But it is a deadly, dangerous doctrine. If you begin by undermining the Genesis account, you then undermine everything that follows. If you do not take the six days as they are given to us, as literal, evening and morning, day one, day two, no way of getting around that. If that is not literal, then the virgin birth account, which is very poetic, is not literal, and then the resurrection is not literal. So a great deal is at stake. Every departure of the church from a true Christian faith has begun virtually 
for the departure from Genesis 1 through 11. And it is taking place again. <coughs> Modernism got its start that way. And so too did uh, the departure that is now underway in Reformed and Fundamentalist circles. Now, Susan, would you like to comment on these things? I would like to ask you, uh, you mentioned that the Reformation began to, under, began to appreciate and understand the need for Genesis 1 through 11 being um, actual, uh, being truth. How, um, how was that strengthened um, through the church? The first thing I remember um, about uh, evolution, about people turning from, turning from the historicity of the Genesis account is because of the influence of Darwin. So what happened between the Reformation and Darwin to give such a strong, uh, to give such a strong understanding that uh, Genesis was true? Yes, that's a good question. One of the things that happened after the uh, Reformation in a couple of generations was the rise of Pietism, which put the emphasis not on hard doctrine, but on feeling. Uh, you did not need to be correct or accurate on the details of scripture and of doctrine, but if your heart was right with the Lord, if you were full of a warm glow and your uh, preaching or your testimony radiated with the warm fuzzies, as it has been called, then you were a true Christian. But if you believed literally and taught it carefully and conscientiously, you were somehow a scholastic. You were over-intellectualizing the gospel. And so they heaped a great deal of ridicule on the reformers. Well, then this gave way, or hand in hand with it, since the emphasis was on man's feelings, an emphasis followed on man's thought, which meant rationalism. And rationalism pursued this uh, feeling of respect for Greco-Roman culture. And you had the rise of uh, a Protestant Thomism. Now, the Protestant version of Thomism is what we call Arminianism. Its doctrine of the church, of course, is not Thomistic. But in its approach to doctrine and to scripture, it is essentially Thomism. Well, then with the Enlightenment and its emphasis on man and man's reason, step by step, the triumph of humanism took place in the church. The church was receptive to alien doctrines, and by the time of Darwin, it had so infiltrated by a Greek culture which was glorified that it saw everything through Greek eyes. We 
knew, especially those who were older like myself, how heavy when we were young the influence in education of Greco-Roman ideas were. They were basic. The Bible was just used for devotions at the beginning of the school day, but Greco-Roman thinking saturated the curriculum. This is why when Darwin came out with his first book in 1859, The Origin of Species, it was a scientific book, dull reading. If you've ever read it or tried to read it, you'll know it's dull. I was not yet in my teens when I had got it and plowed through it. Deadly dull and not very intelligent. But uh, it sold out its first edition in four days or almost overnight. It created a sensation. It was what people wanted to hear and to believe. It relieved their conscience as far as believing the Bible. Well, modernism immediately raced through the church. Those groups that broke away made the mistake of not breaking with classical ideas of education. And the result is they very quickly have reproduced the same errors, the same anti-Christian perspective. So it's very sickening and sad to see people within the church who profess to be orthodox in their faith reviving classical education. It's also just maddening to see them embracing a the theory of evolution, departing departing from the teaching of Scripture for this theory of evolution that is so foolish, so stupid, and has such terrible consequences in our culture. Yes. Well, I guess I want to start by saying that what we've identified tonight is not an isolated or a minor problem. I brought along just two or three sources tonight to demonstrate that. Uh, <clears throat> this view, this non-literal interpretation of um, Genesis 1 through 11, and especially chapters 1 and 2, is rife even among the evangelicals. A prime example is uh, Clark Pinnock, whose book, uh, The Scripture Principle, published in 1984, has this little dandy statement on page 119. Pinnock, incidentally, was formerly uh, very strong on the Scriptures. Some of his earlier books were quite outstanding, but uh, more and more he's capitulated to biblical criticism and various other errors. He says on page 119, Starting with some Old Testament examples, indications of the special character of the Bible's historical writing crop up again and again. At the very beginning, we are confronted with a six-day creation and begin to wonder how the world can have been created in so short a time. The problem seems to have been a misunderstanding of the literary genre. In the nature of the fall of, a narrative rather, of the fall of Adam, there are numerous symbolic features. God molding man from dirt, the talking snake, God molding woman from Adam's rib, symbolic trees, four major rivers from one garden, 
so that it is natural to ask whether there is not a meaningful narration that does not stick only to factual matters. Close quote. In other words, God, in other words God's making man from the dust, the appearance of the serpent, and God's molding woman are not literal, and there's no reason to accept them as literal. And yet, uh, Pinnock is accepted as a leading evangelical theologian, perhaps the leading younger evangelical theologian. Another example I brought from an outstanding book, Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation, by James Davison Hunter. This was published by the University of Chicago Press in, uh, I think it was late 80s. Yes, 1987. This is a survey of evangelical college and seminary students. <clears throat> You'll be interested in some of the survey results on page 24 of his book. Uh, students were asked if they agree with this. The Bible is the inspired word of God, not mistaken in its teachings, but is not always to be taken literally in its statements concerning matters of science, historical reporting, etc. 50% of the evangelical students said they agreed with that. 54% of the evangelical seminary students said they agreed with that statement. And yet they profess to be evangelical and don't believe the Bible is to be taken literally in its statements concerning matters of science, historical reporting, like early in, um, in the early chapters of Genesis. And my, for my last example, I picked up something that is more at home in the Reformed world. This is from an article by <clears throat> a professor in a noted Reformed seminary, Meredith G. Klein, Space and Time in the Genesis Cosmogony, from Perspectives on Science and Christian Faith, uh, published in 1996 by the American Scientific Affiliation, which is essentially a theistic evolutionist group. Yes. Uh, I don't have time to go into all this. It's very extensive. But just I'm reading from the abstract. And here is his goal in writing this paper. To rebut the literalist interpretation of the Genesis Creation Week propounded by the young earth theorists is a central concern of this article. At the same time, the exegetical evidence adduced also refutes the harmonistic day-age view. Now, this is very important for our listeners to understand because this is really behind all of this nonsense. The conclusion is that as far as the time frame is concerned, with respect to both the duration and sequence of events, the scientist is left free of biblical constraints in hypothesizing about cosmic origins. And that is the fundamental motivation, I'm convinced, in most of this. They don't want the Bible telling them exactly what they need to believe with respect to science, but want to follow secular scientific theories. But if you take away the anchor of history in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, as Rush has wisely pointed out, why not take away all of it? And of course, that's exactly what's happened among the liberals and even among the neo-orthodox like Bart and others, talking about salvation history. Even evangelicals are beginning to talk that way. Yes. And it sounds very pious, but what it basically means is these events may not have happened. It doesn't really matter. What matters is piety and one's relationship with God and so forth. But our faith is firmly anchored in history. And apart from the historical events, we really don't have a faith. And it begins in Genesis chapter 1. There's much more to say, but I'll turn it over to Mark and see if there's anything you'd like to add. Well... Uh, this later, latest paper you have comes from someone who's ostensibly reformed, and uh, the whole idea that we can reinterpret scripture and pick and choose what we want and decide which is accurate and which is not, which is historical and which is not, is basically old German higher criticism. 
And now this has seeped into the evangelical community. It's seeped into the reformed community. And um, this is, uh, you know, a heresy it is. That's, that doesn't just influence Genesis and the question of science and origins. It'll influence every aspect of scripture. Uh, it can influence soteriology, it, it can influence everything about scripture. Nothing is reliable if it's not all reliable. That's right. One of the questions I have, I know for years, coming from Blacksburg, Virginia, where Henry Morris used to be, there are, so there are scientists who, have a, who are Christians who really work to show that, that as the Bible speaks to history, it speaks, uh, speaks to science, it speaks truly. There was a book done by Shelby Sharp, do you remember that book mm -hmm. several years ago, yes. in which he used the arguments of evolutionists that he showed within the evolutionist camp, and I'm, I'm resting on this, that even the evolutionists could not come to any firm consensus about what evolution was or the validity of evolution. Now, surely someone like Meredith Klein is aware that these people are out there, that these scientists are out there. I have seen video after video after video where these scientists prove that the undergirding of evolution is absolutely asinine. With that knowledge out there, why would someone who calls himself reformed like Meredith Klein want to turn from scripture? Why would he want to go off into this insanity? I think a lot of it is intellectual respectability within the scientific mm -hmm. community yes. and it's an evil perversion. And I find it very ironic that just as a number of modern scientists are recognizing the flaws in evolution, and Rush, you, as you know, a number of books have been written recently yes. demonstrating that, the many in this supposed Christian church uh, and even among the Reformed are sort of playing catch-up, and now they're finding, well, you know, wouldn't it be very cool and avant-garde, you know, to, to, uh, to be an evolutionist, you know, or at least a theistic evolutionist. And uh, it really is a denial of the faith. Calcine is one of the few organizations, by the way, publicly and visibly. Of course, there's the Creation Science Research, and there are a few Reformed seminaries, but very few, very few, that will take a public stand in favor of uh, literal six-day creation. Mark, you were going to say something. Well, it's not just intellectual respectability. There's an, there's an egotism that, that goes along with saying, uh, you people who just believe it literally, just believe what it, uh, uh, what it says, don't really understand. Right. And those of us who are a little more intellectual and who can go to long theses about why scripture right. isn't really accurate, um, really are a little above your level. And so uh, the whole idea of, uh, well, it goes back to uh, Clarence Darrow's calling uh, William Jennings Bryan, mm -hmm. well, he was referring, I think, generally to people who believe scripture and, want, and, and mm -hmm. hold to it as, as ignoramuses. Right. And that really kind of turned public opinion into um, being afraid to defend creationism because they were characterized as ignoramuses who knew nothing about science. Incidentally, um, regarding the Scope tr trial, Every single evidence that was presented in favor of evolution at that trial, which changed public opinion, has now been discarded even by evolutionists mm -hmm. because they've been, it's been thoroughly discredited. Yeah. Their evidences keep changing, but the theory keeps going because it's a faith, which, which makes me suspicious of people who want to use an interpretation of scripture, or whatever they call it, even though they, they, they say they believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God, they want an interpretation that um, is basically 
falls right into the laps and is entirely favorable to those who want to dis destroy all credibility to scripture. And uh, it's a very sad and it's a very dangerous doctrine. Yes. Mark was pointing out that evolution is a faith. I think that's a vital point for us to understand. Uh, it's not built on evidence. The evidence is built upon a presupposition. And the presupposition, of course, is uh, an atheistic or best an agnostic presupposition. Rush was talking about how that uh, Darwin's book was just lapped up right when it was published. I think that's because there was a cultural climate for the yes. book. <laughs> in fact, I think it was one of the Huxleys who said, and I don't have the quote in front of me, Rush, but he said, this was a book we were waiting for somebody to write. Bernard Shaw made a like statement. Because this justified their philosophical yes. perversion. And go the ahead. The concept of evolution uh, was very strongly formulated by uh, Hegel as his philosophy of history. Then Darwin simply came along, took a generally accepted fact, and claimed he provided a biological basis for it. And another fact that a lot of people don't know uh, is that Marx's book Capital was originally dedicated to, to uh, Darwin, and Darwin politely declined. Yes. But Marx said, "I'm basically doing an economics and social theory. What you have, what you've said here in, in yes. supposed science." What Darwin did was he gave a an ostensibly scientific explanation to explain something a lot of people wanted explained. How do we explain the world without God? That's if you right. can explain the world without God, Absolutely. we don't have to let God into it in any area of life or thought. If God didn't start the world, and the world started on its own, then we aren't beholding to God. Darwin gave an ostensible explanation to that. It's called natural selection. Now, that idea has been completely thrown out as a mechanism of evolution. They've gone over to um, mutation as the basic uh, cause of differences, and that's called neo-Darwinism. And, and evolution is not, has not been a consistent scientific doctrine. It keeps changing. And the ideas keep changing because they keep finding that their own evidence shows that this can't happen or this, this is impossible. And therefore, the theory keeps changing, but the faith remains the same. The faith remains that God did not create and that the world Absolutely. came about by natural processes. And they're going to stick to that faith even though their explanation changes. They want the word of God to change. They want the word of God to be reinterpreted. Uh, they've reinterpreted evolution numerous right. times just in the last 150 years. Absolutely. That's, that's an excellent way, of, excellent way of putting it. Because evolution is really a faith. It's a religion. And uh, they're going to have to adjust their theories to fit this particular religious presupposition. Of course, we don't have to do that because ours is anchored in the inspired, infallible, and unchanging Word of God. But people need to recognize that this is a philosophy. It's an evolution is an atheistic philosophy. And then when you see Christians, ostensible Christians, picking it up, it shows a real betrayal of the faith. <clears throat> One of the things, too, in the process is that the doctrine of creation is caricatured routinely. I have read, I can't recall how many times in the past two, three years, Bishop 
Usher ridiculed for dating creation to 4004 B.C. He did it on the basis of biblical chronology, which he took seriously. Now, one can disagree with uh, his uh, uh, collation of the uh, chronologies, but not by more than a few years. What I have seen increasingly is the ascription to Usher of stating that uh, I believe it was on the 4th of October or the 10th of October, something like that, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, that God created uh, the heavens and the earth, culminating in a week's time or six days' time with the creation of man. Now, no one can ever prove that Usher made any such statement. There is no such statement in Bishop's, Bishop Usher's writings. He was a Church of England bishop, primate of Ireland, a very brilliant scholar. His writings in both Latin and English were extensive and very solid. Now, some have claimed that it was in the last century, one writer, that Bishop Lightfoot um, made that statement about creation in October at a particular time. I'll believe it when I see it in Lightfoot. So much nonsense is published about uh, what these creationists said in order to ridicule them. However, getting back to the issue of the ridicule of creationism, these scholars, including one or two you cited, Andrew, speak of uh, the ordinary reader of the Bible being unable to understand that what we have in Genesis 1 through 11 is elsewhere as a literary genre. That's right. Uh, now, they like to use expressions like that because they figure maybe half of those boobs don't know what genre means. <laughs> but what they are saying is that those of us who take the Bible seriously and literally, when it speaks seriously and literally, don't understand that here are literary devices that have a super intellectual intention. Well, what they have done is to deny the validity of the Protestant Reformation. Absolutely. If God did not speak and give his word to the ordinary believer, there's something wrong with a message. If, as Tyndale said when he translated his Bible, which is the King James Version as we have it today, Nine-tenths of it is what Tyndale translated. He didn't finish with the Minor Prophets. So his name is not on the book, and a scoundrel's name, King James, is on it. He said he wanted the Word of God to be available for the simplest plowboy in all of England. Why? Because he felt the Word of God was given by the Almighty for everyone. It had to be, therefore, given 
in language understandable by everyone. Now, the essence of the position of the, the medieval church was that the Bible was a very sophisticated book, understandable by scholars, best understandable by them. Let me correct a myth that they chained the Bible because they didn't want ordinary people to read it. They were hand copied in those centuries, and extremely valuable, and they could not afford to have them stolen. So whether in the library or in the church, they were chained. In fact, uh, books on the shelves in the medieval library, any book, would be chained so that you would pull the book with a short chain out to a ledge, pull up your stool and read it there. It was too expensive to hand copy a book and leave it where someone could steal it. But the point is that the essential position of Rome in the medieval era was that this is a book that can be misinterpreted by very ordinary people. Therefore, it has to be interpreted for them. But the essence of the Reformation, and in particular of those who followed Calvin, was that here is a book God gave for everyone, understandable by everyone. And therefore, if we read under the guidance of the Spirit, he will make it plain. Amen. Now, this has been a doctrine of the great Protestant confessions. For these contemporary Protestant scholars to speak of the literary genre and go into their contemptuous treatments of the believer who takes the word of God as it is written is to say, uh, surrender the book. That's right. Leave it to us. They might as well be honest and join Rome. That's right. And I challenge them to do so. That goes for all of these men, Meredith Klein and all the others. That's right. They're in the wrong churches. Absolutely. They have no right to claim a Reformation label. They are enemies of the Reformation with their theories of Scripture. They are on the road to Rome, whether they admit it or not. Well, they've turned much of the Protestant church into Rome, a sort of an intellectual elitist Romanism yes. within the church. You know, another point I was going to make, Rush, in an outstanding book on this and other issues, Noah Weeks, The Sufficiency of Scripture, a great book. You won't agree with everything in it, of course, but especially in dealing with this issue of creation, he deals with these people on the so-called framework, literary hypothesis. Let me read just a little section here because it's, it's really outstanding. Speaking of this interpretation that we've been justly criticizing, all this is but illustration of the fact that if this first 11 chapters of, of uh, Genesis, especially the first two, is poetry or parable, it is poetry or parable with no context and basis of interpretation. Biblical stories like that of Jotham or Nathan's story of the poor man and his lamb or Jesus' parables have figures in them that can be identified with historical people. The Bramble is Abimelech, the poor man is Uriah the Hittite, 
The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, so forth. Who is Adam, though? The answer is not given. Here's what he says. I would suggest that the reason this problem has not concerned the proponents of the non-literal view is that they have been less concerned with the problem of interpretation than with avoiding a literal reading of the text. Yes. And that is the fundamental issue. Anything goes as long as it's not literal. Well, it puts these people who are creative evolutionists into a, a ridiculous position. Supposedly, according to them, uh, man evolved in Darwinian fashion over the centuries from uh, some primitive spark of life to some little single-cell creatures swimming around in the ocean to a more complex creature who then decided to crawl out of the waters, little by little developed various appendages for living on the soil, and after billions upon billions of years uh, began to walk erect, and from grunts began to make uh, sounds that had meanings and one day woke up and said hey I'm a man I'm a human being it's a silly picture but that's exactly the image they have God is left out and uh, the result is a monstrous piece of nonsense as one, uh, well, more than one scientist has told me, he has more respect for a six-day creationist than these theistic evolutionists. They're trying to combine two alien worlds, two That's alien right. realms, Absolutely. and it isn't a success. And this one man told me they deserve the contempt of both sides. It's like you say in one of your early books, Rush, intellectual schizophrenia. That's precisely what yes. it is. Although there are a couple of even reformed denominations, I won't mention, but I'm thinking of one right now that doesn't require six-day creation uh, of its ministers. There's another one that uh, Susan herself has been doing some investigation in. She was telling me a little about that today. Can you maybe mention some of the details of what a particular case is going on in that ostensibly very conservative denomination on this issue? Um, Without being too specific, uh, <laughs> we are not trying to make the faith the battle against a particular group, but against a faith That's right. that is false. Several years ago, there was uh, a case in the same denomination where a, a stronger stand for creation was taken. That was probably within the last, um, oh, ten years or so. But after that, it was amazing how quickly after that this denomination began to have rulings in its, in its highest court that um, began to chip away at, uh, at the stand it had taken in creation. And now, um, oh, a dear friend of ours has uh, lost a case. And the man, I was reading his complaint and reading some of the language that the man had used. This man believes that there was, that there was the possibility of death in Eden before sin, before sin came into the world, uh, that the animals killed each other, and, um, uh, but he can't explain from the Bible why, 
why that could occur because so much of the testimony of scripture is that it can it could not have occurred he doesn't know how long the days were and uh, there were very serious problems with his belief and the presbytery basically said that those that those views are not out of accord with the westminster standards hmm. they have said that his beliefs are acceptable within the parameters of the and our understanding of the westminster standards um I asked uh, this pastor if he was going to pursue his case up through the denomination courts, and he said, no, it's a waste of time. He said, when so many conservatives uh, are opposed uh, to six-day creation, that it's just a, a tremendous waste of time. And this is one of the denominations that is known as one of the most conservative, reformed denominations in our country. Um, after this man had... Um, lost his uh, his his case in the church courts. Another man filed a complaint asking that this man's bizarre and strange understanding of creation would be counted as an exception to the doctrinal standards, and that did win. So that did occur. But um, another man stood up right after that ruling and said that he was going to be filing a complaint against that ruling, mm. as in. Uh, and, of course, the, the complaint has not been filed, so no one knows what the language will be. You don't know if he will oppose the um, um, oppose it being an exception or what other fault he could find with the complaint. But uh, the thing that makes me, that upsets me so much is I know these men. I know their families, and I am appalled that they are... Uh, that they are giving away ground of this very critical, important issue. Yeah. You know, the, one of the questions here, Rash, that you read at the beginning was um, a biblical basis for six-day creation, including the meaning of day in Genesis 2-4. Well, the Hebrew word is yom, and um, it means usually, and obviously in this context, a regular 24-hour day, yes. because the language evening and morning is used. Evening and morning were the first day, and the second day, and the third day, and so yes. forth. So I think we need to make clear that there's no day-age no. Uh, theory here, no possibility of a day age theory. Here. No, it's precluded, both by Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 4. That's precisely correct. One of the, uh, just an additional comment I would like to make uh, our friend who fought this battle did it in terms of the highest standards of church courts, i.e., he wanted to argue the issue and he wanted to argue scripture you know, argue the scriptural issues and uh, the premise, the reformed premise that scripture interprets scripture. And his complaint was laid out so that he was discussing the issue just like you discussed with the days. And when he came to the floor of his presbytery, they never answered or never addressed any of the questions biblically. They answered the quest they answered the issues historically. Well back in back in church history there has always been this long history mm -hmm. of, just as Rush was saying earlier, this strong deviation from a, from a uh, literal understanding of these passages of Scripture. They didn't even want to talk what the Scripture says, as though in their heart of hearts they knew what it said. It's sad when that happens in an ostensibly Protestant denomination that we cannot go to the Scriptures to examine what they in fact say. The other question here was six-day creation, a theological issue prior to the appearance of Darwin's work. Of course, you can even go back to Plato and some of the Greek philosophers to get evolution. Montesquieu and, and uh, other philosophers prior to that time held to a, a general evolution. But I don't know that it really became a big theological issue 
until Dar, at least in the church, uh, as far as defections, whole-scale defections from the faith. Of course, as Rush mentioned, even some of the patristic fathers were not strong on the issue. But the church has capitulated, especially in the late Victorian, late uh, last century and, and early this century. And even, I must say, even some of the Princeton theologians were not exactly strong on this issue. That's true. It's very sad. They wavered in some instances or were ready to compromise anything in order to preserve a facade of uh, compliance with scripture while accommodating science. At the time that uh, Darwin's book came out, McCosh was, I believe, president of Princeton Seminary, and his view was uh, a rather compromising one. Yes, it seemed that there was really an obsession at the time. Of course, most of those men, not all of them, tended to be evidentialists, yes. apologetically, did not understand presuppositionalism like Kuiper did. Uh, and so they were, it seems, very quick to latch on to any scientific argument that they mm -hmm. thought could justify the scripture. And of course, when you start going down that road, you'll eventually give up the faith. Princeton began to make a stand to a degree in the generation after Darwin. But when Woodrow Wilson became president of Princeton, he destroyed the Calvinistic character of the university and paved the way for the destruction of the seminary. So that uh, it was a very tragic event that took place then in that the great witness against the whole of the uh, anti-Christian world in my view, uh, Princeton, was undermined. Rush, I want to get to this question because I want you to talk. Question five, reflections on how you, and he's speaking of you, Rush, have handled this issue when it has arisen against your ministry. One thing, Rush, a lot of people don't know about, and I know you're not boastful at all, but you really had a hand in, uh, in getting this whole issue uh, to the forefront. Could you talk about uh, getting a particular book published? You and I know which one you're talk I'm talking about, and, and your role in the whole issue of, of six-day creation? Yes, I was uh, helpful in getting Whitcomb and Morris's uh, Genesis Flood published. They wrote it. I was one of a large number of uh, people they consulted for criticism. I expressed my great delight in the book, but I said, uh, Moody Press will never accept it. You'll have to revise it radically in order to make it acceptable to them because they are uh, very deeply wedded to a compromise. Uh, I met the press and its editors rather than the Bible school. So I took the liberty of uh, sending my copy of the manuscript to Hayes Craig at Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company. And he read it and said, I would be very happy to publish it if they agree. And I said, well, I'm sure they will. And sure enough, when they submitted it to Moody Press, the editors told Whitman Morris the book would be acceptable if 
they made uh, a number of changes and made uh, theistic evolution at least a biblical alternative to six-day creationism. So when they wrote to me that this was happening, I said, uh, PNR is ready to accept the book. Are you agreeable to their publishing it? And they said, yes. Uh, and I said, there will be no changes made. They will publish it as it is. So I immediately uh, got in touch with Hayes Craig to tell him that Whitcomb and Morris were agreeable. And of course, the rest is history because the book has been one of the great uh, bestsellers in That's Christian right. books since World War II. It has been continuously in print since the day of its publication. Right. No one can guess how many uh, copies have been printed and sold. So it has been a very eloquent testimony against the whole of the evolutionary uh, compromise. Now, uh, the Genesis Flood has been uh, uh, criticized by some people who are creationists on various grounds. Uh, first, uh, Whitcomb and Morris do believe in uh, a rather premillennial perspective, and there's a single phrase somewhere in the book which uh, indicates that. There are two other things, two or three others like that. And uh, while I didn't agree with them, I didn't feel that uh, they should be omitted unless they chose to do it. It was their book. So the critics have been there. And uh, their points are sometimes valid, but they're trifling as compared to the main thrust of the book. So I'm grateful for my part in that. Our time is up now. I think we shall continue the subject in our next tape because there's so much to say. Thank you all for listening.